Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So Patricia, uh, it's been a while since we did our last check-in. How are things going with you? Any updates, uh, stories, anecdotes that you could share with us? I have so many this week. Um, and it's only because at work, siempre vamos a tener like a little rant that I've had. Just in general, I typically get mad at processes in higher ed and how really just stupid they are. Um, but I think this semester has been even worse just because as an academic advisor, it has been, you know, under my responsibilities to do the early alert referral, which I've mentioned in the, in the previous episode. Um, and so early alert is still new in my campus. Um, they're still trying to figure out a process. But um, at Fresno, I did the early alert uh, or I saw how early alert was made. They also would refer them to the center uh, for students to meet with. But um, mostly, like, the frustrating part is just petitions, right? So normally, a student would have to petition to do a late draw, petition to withdraw for the whole semester, petition to add more classes. So that's usually under the office of the registrar. I think as a student, I didn't know that you could actually drop a class if you feel like you're failing. So you have that opportunity. So my recommendation for any current or new students check the office of the registrar whatever the hell it's called in your campus um, to see when they have the schedule of the last day to add and drop and what the petition is for to add late drop um, and the thing that students don't know is that if you withdraw from a class or you withdraw from the semester your each campus has their own policy in terms of if you can delete that semester off your record if you can um, you do have to pay for that process, of course, because nothing is gained here um, for free. Um, or you can withdraw from the petition. You will have a W, and I think a, it scares a lot of students what a W is. Uh, what a W is, and again, check your campus because they may be different, but the W is um, it, it, it's withdrawal. And if you do a late drop withdrawal, um, it just doesn't, it has it listed on your on your transcript but it doesn't have any weight in terms of your GPA. So you can drop the class, it'll have a W, but it doesn't benefit or affect your grade. So essentially it will not be calculating your GPA. That's something students don't know. And then oftentimes they get on probation or they have a terrible semester that drops their GPA. Those are some just important tips. And I wish I knew that for one of the accounting classes that I failed before, because that would have saved me a lot of like headache of just saying, you know what, let me drop this class it's fine. Um, I don't care about the W. No one cares about Ws in the transcript. So I think that's another misconception that people have. And I think it's important to use that as a service just because it allows you to do well, better in your other classes. Of course, you know, there's other things to consider, which is full-time, uh, part-time status, how your financial aid will be impacted. If you're undocumented folks, that's huge. So if you do drop to low but weigh in your benefits of either just taking this whole semester off. Um, there are some campuses that allow one free off semester. So 
you don't have to submit any formal paper. You just don't enroll in classes. Uh, but you want to make sure that you do a leave of absence in your financial aid application because it'll stop the time in terms of your financial aid. So it rolls over that semester or that quarter or whatever. But, you know, learn about some of these procedures. Please, please, please. Just because it irritates me seeing that there could have been a solution. And then students have to come back and have like a terrible experience. And unfortunately, these campuses have all these processes and bureaucracy, which Ariana and I have been like, talking about how stupid they are and how discouraging they are and they're trying to push students out mostly um, because campuses are monitoring how many students are currently enrolled and that's how it functions the amount of students that they enrolled meaning they have tuition they have budgets for everything single thing if a student takes a leave of absence if a student goes from full-time to part-time their money goes down in terms of the budget because they can't count that tuition and fee money to pay for all that stuff so um, your student government, any of your services that they pay for for your fees, that's what they care about. And that's why they have such a big bureaucracy in terms of why they don't accept that many late drops or withdrawals because they want to keep you there, which is counterintuitive because if you think about it, if the student is doing terrible and they want to withdraw and you cancel it, well, now they're definitely going to fail um, because they're not in a good position already, right? And so that has been the frustrating part this semester is knowing that people in different campuses are seeing that students are doing not so well. And during orientation, they had encouraged all first year students to take 15 units, 15 units, full time, full time, 15 to 16, um, depending on your quarter or semester system. Since I'm in a semester, full time is 12 units, um, but they've been pushing people to do 15 to graduate in four years or whatever that even means now uh, because of their graduation initiative because of their budgets, because of the cost of having to have students repeat courses, campuses lose money and they know that. But at the same time, they're denying students from dropping courses, even if the faculty is supportive. And I think that's the problem is that a lot of faculty don't know the processes of all these things because that's not their job. But unfortunately, it's to the terrible experience of the students having to navigate this. So um, this week I've been dealing with trying to encourage students to do that petition because I can see that they're in a, like, in a bad position. And it's unfortunate that these campuses, the people who are usually accepting or denying the position or the petition is the undeclared advising office, whatever that's called in your campuses. Um, and they've been denying students because they don't have the proper documentation. They don't um, specifically word the personal statement or attach proof in the way that clearly outlines things, which is a problem because some of these students don't know how to write these things, even though they have a legitimate way. Some people don't have documentation because guess what? Some people don't have health insurance to talk about things. Um, how do you prove, you know, added hours without also breaking confidentiality of the stuff that you want to turn in? Um, all these different things, like if you're self-employed, how do you prove that? Like, there's just so many ways to have to prove these things that sometimes students, because of the way that the procedure is written, doesn't allow for nuances. Um, and I've been encouraging students to turn that in because they are in a position, but I think I forget that I am way too compassionate. And I think that is that I'm not thinking like an evil person who's like, you know what, let me put you through a miserable time. 
And that's the whole point of the early alert is it's supposed to be early, but because these people are getting denied this, this petition, they're now doing worse in their classes and now I'm getting more alerts. So I think that is the part of the problem is that that's the whole point. Um, and I wish there was a system where advisors can advocate and just say, yes, let me drop that class for you. Let me do that. Instead of having an undeclared advising office who doesn't know the student, who is listening to them and of arbitrary, I don't know what they turn in. And sometimes, you know, students, if they're already in a bad position, mental health, a lot of these people supposedly have counseling backgrounds, but really don't understand how students experience oppression, how students are having mental health illnesses. I've had to refer someone to like an emergency health thing because they had suicidal thoughts happening. I don't know what's gonna happen with these referrals because oftentimes these services are not very well catered to BIPOC students. And so it's just scary. And, and, and most of these services don't help these students. I think they make it worse. And just witnessing all of this, is just like, it shouldn't fall under one person and it never should. Um, you feel it because you're generally trying to make a connection to these humans. But I think that's the hard part and the hard reality um, is that when you're trying to be compassionate and this is what we're trying to do, other offices aren't, that aren't in your, in your, in your, thing. And so if we were to actually provide a care of like things, we wouldn't put bureaucracies and barriers for them to do it. Because at the end of the day, if you treat them in a nice way and you tell them, you know what, I believe you, let's get this class uh, taken off. You don't have to have it in your record. It's fine. We should allow mistakes to happen. We should allow learning experiences. You, you thought you could do 15. It's fine. Let's do just six. It's okay. And we shouldn't penalize students and just take them off. And the students would feel much better to come back, you know, and that would improve your retention. It won't improve your numbers in the way that you want to, but realistically under pandemics, y'all think really the students are going to do well in 15 units and have students and then faculty be so judgmental. I've had like to see the comments that faculty made and I was just like, are you for reals? Like you say that you, every single part of the point that these are adults, yet you treat them like children. You treat them like and you oppress children and then you oppress these adults and you know patronize them so that has been the frustrating part when it, witnessing all of this and i just had to have a little rant just because i'm like me estoy volviendo like um in like an angry and like all these things and trying to show up for students in a caring way i think that has been just like like, how do you approach them moving forward? Like, if you're trying to be really helpful as a college and then the, the university in general is not helpful and doesn't have the vision to do things differently. Yeah, I, a lot of those things sound very familiar to me. And it's, it's just like, it's unfortunate that even during a pandemic, a university wouldn't be able to understand or tell their staff, like, Let's be a little bit more lenient. Let's be a little bit more understanding, flexible, empathetic. You know, the students are going through a lot. We're all going through a lot. There's so much, there are so many stressors during a pandemic, during a world health crisis, during where people are unemployed. Uh, people are encountering maybe, you know, being, um, catching COVID, right? Or having family members, like even, uh, for the class that I'm in, like I've had a couple emails from students who are saying, hey, like I'm taking care of my ill, Ill my, my father just got ill or, you know, I, I'm 
encountering these experiences, I'm they, they they're submitting basically some health related um, exemptions for themselves for their family members so that they won't be marked down. You know, they're they're worried about their grades. They're worried about how they'll be perceived if they're not as participatory during class or. You know, there it's it's such a pain, and it's and so fortunate that it falls on the student to be having to deal with all of this and not have a policy across the board like, you know, from fall twenty twenty to spring twenty one. You know, these policies are um, we're going to be more lenient with the policies that we're implementing, and if we get such requests, especially from an advisor who has vetted the student, like let's just make it as easy as possible for the student to get what they need, right? Um, but on my end, um, I haven't been dealing with a lot of work-related stress, but I've, um, I got a new consulting gig. So I'm an um, educational consultant for a local nonprofit in here in Marin County. And I just started that this week. So I've been, you know, up until this point, I had been going back and forth with the paperwork, with the how much I was going to charge and et cetera, working out all the details, but I'm happy to announce that I'm doing that now um, for a couple of months, in addition to the teaching fellowship that I'm doing with the, um, the, the contemporary immigration policy class. Um, I'm helping do, uh, teach that. And then also, um, yeah, applying for PhD programs. I've <laughs> attended so many webinars. And it's been interesting, and I'm glad. I'm, I I don't know why. Maybe I didn't have time last last year to do this, but I attended um, one for you, or a couple for UC Riverside, and one for USC. And um, the last one that I, I attended for UC Riverside, it was nice to hear from faculty. Like we had a couple of faculty join the call, the Zoom call, and share about the research and the projects and their findings and and it really was um, a great way to learn what they're doing uh, firsthand. And I think one of the, the advice that I got from, from the webinar was that we can always YouTube faculty to find out, you know, to hear them actually speak and share their work. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I always just expected to find all of the information on their website or on their CV that they've posted on, uh, in, on their profile. And, so that was great. And then um, to your point about all these policies, I was just reminded that um, students can take leaves of absences as well. You know, if um, I had a, a former student of mine con um, contact me and ask me about um, if they could take their autonomous state and if they could take a break and they take class at, at the JC instead for for a year. And I said, absolutely, you can just talk to your advisor, whoever that is, and, and let them know your situation and request a leave of absence. It's um, good for one semester or two. And if you decide not to come back, that's, that's fine too. You can always transfer to another four-year university. And so that's an option. And, it's, and, and to your point about a W, Patti, it reminded me of my time that I had to take a W for a British English class that I was taking at the JC. And it was like so painful to, to do it. But I, I, um, I'm so glad that I did because that, that was when I realized I did not want to pursue English literature as my major. And instead, I took, a, um, at that time, I took a, a lifeguard class that was worth the same amount. It was three units. 
I got a C, which because I couldn't save the dummy underneath, but <laughs> but I, I passed and I got credit for that that area. So it's always okay to um, get a W. Don't get too many because if you're thinking of graduate school, that doesn't look too good to have dropped too many classes. Um, but it, it like Bhakti said, it doesn't affect your grade or your grade point average or anything. It just, you know, it just withdrew from it. And that's why I think when I was an advisor, I would encourage students to take up to 16 units of uh, classes um, so that in case they drop a class after the ad drop period, then they would still have 12 units and they would still be eligible for their financial aid and scholarships, et cetera. So um, just some things to consider and i know this is a long check-in but you know um just want to make this knowledge um aware you know um but uh, available for others who might be in that in that midst right now in the semester that we find ourselves and anyway like if you're in california and you are undocumented and you don't get state university grants money or from the state schools or some sort of financial aid package to, turn, to pay for your first year. My recommendation, start the first semester, you know, because there, there's the policies and in incoming first years that if you don't attend the first semester, then you have to reapply to the university. One of the tricks is enrolling until you hit, um, what is it called, census day. When census day, what means is that you are officially a matriculated student drop your classes in the following day or the day of, and just pay the prorated rate, and then um, take a leave of absence for financial aid. And then you can come in the spring if you work for that semester. So some students end up working that semester. Some students end up uh, taking classes at the community college for free because they're already low income. So they just signed the waiver for the community college, just pay a few fee uh, money, which is like, some, some community colleges is like $7. Um, and so do all of those tricks, you know, find what are some ways to just help yourself out. Like we try so hard to overcompensate for the work to get there, but I'm like, you're doing so much more outside of work. And right now we're in a pandemic. If you already have mental health stuff, know of all the early signs early, drop when it's, you know, possible emergencies like this. Don't, you don't plan these things. People need to realize that and even hire professionals and workplaces. You don't plan to have an emergency. And if you have a lot of emergencies, well, guess what? It's because we experience a lot of marginalization. You know, our whole lives are supposed to be chaotic like that because it's designed to be chaotic like this. And so try to find a way. And if you have a lot of W's, I'm pretty sure there's a way to like market it. I mean, how many of these Supreme Court justice nominees have done it? They don't bring in notes. And they're able to get the job. So don't think that because of that, you can do it. It's all the way to how you talk about it. You know, market, how do you explain it, how you decide on it, you know, make it as a learning experience. But overall, we're allowed to have a bad semester. We're allowed to have a year-long terrible semester. Uh, there's ways to work it. And I think the important part is working with an advisor that's helpful. Sometimes that may take several times to find them. But they could help you just like know what your options are and to strategize. How do you rescue the rest of the semester, the rest of the quarter, um, just so you're in a better position. And I think take it as a learning thing. If you're going to register for classes anytime soon, please, please, please be realistic with the amount of classes you're going to take next semester. If you're an incoming first year, make sure that your classes are balanced. If you're not good in a subject, 
hold that off, take that requirement later, you know, like, um, or switch majors, you know, like if it's not a right thing, it doesn't feel right. Don't do chem if you're not going to think about, you know, any, if anything you've taken out of this podcast is that you can market your way out of things. You can also, you know, whatever degree you end up deciding, you can always switch it. Of course, there's some fields that are not as forgiving and that's where you have to decide, you know, we can still build lives outside of that, that path. Okay. Well, thank you so much, um, Ariana, for the check-in. I think you're doing super awesome with all the work that you're doing and providing all these resources. It's like both previous, as a previous advisor, it's not pretty, <laughs> um, especially if you're trying to do things a little bit different, but I think it's important to still like bring in an awareness just because I think people forgot their anti-racist statements again and how much they've been wanting to be um, empathetic through this pandemic. I think the empathy should be um, spread out to these policies, especially now that they're seeing, I'm, I'm foreseeing terrible outcomes by the end of this, this term. Like it's not going to be pretty. Like a lot of people are going to take a leave of absence for the spring, to be honest, because Currently, the CSU is fully online next semester, um, and they're saying that they might not. Might they're like thinking about it, and I'm like, girl, like public health professionals have been saying that this is going to take a while. So I don't know why you're all planning, and the cities are moving from you know orange or whatever colors they have, like purple to like orange, in the different stages. I'm like, yeah, it might look good right now, but again, it's flu we're season. Just starting winter. <laughs> we just started. I don't know why people are still like, well, let's open up, you know, more. And it's like, the holidays are coming, girl. Like Halloween is coming. Thanksgiving is kind of come back up with people like traveling, taking vacations. December, it's just not, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Don't forget to vote. Yeah. And, you know, think about ways that, you know, to log off of some of these things just because also that is the hard part. Just minimize the amount of screen time, I guess. <laughs> School related or work related, but thank you so much for this. I know it's a big long check-in, but I think it was just needed. And if anyone relates, um, I am glad that I'm not the only one, even though I can't hear your feedback back because it's a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully it sparks some conversations in your campuses. And if anything, um, I'm very excited for this next guest that we have where we talk with Dr. Maddie. So let's start the episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. I'm really excited to be here um, and having a, a great guest this week. Her name is Maricela Becerra. Her pronouns are she, her, ella. Her guest position is Assistant Professor of Spanish. Um, Dr. Mari is an Assistant Professor of Spanish who specializes in memory and violence in Mexican literature and culture. She's a proud immigrant and first-gen scholar. Mari has been sharing her journey in academia as a mom of two for the last four years on Instagram and blog under Academic Mommy. So welcome, uh, Dr. Mari, to our episode. And we wanted to share that Mari, um, under the Instagram Academic Mommy, was one of the first uh, Instagram platforms that reached out to us, sent us some cool stickers. I still have them actually on my planner. And uh, we've been following you since 2009, early 2009, when we first launched our podcast. 
And we're so happy to, to have you. One of your good friends, Dr. Lorena Marquez came and had been a, a guest in our podcast. So it's really nice to have like running circles coming in to our podcast as guests. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a big fan since you started. I think when I saw your Instagram, I was like, can I send you some stickers? What's your address? I'm going to creep. I promise. I just want to send you something. <laughs> so thank you so much for the invite. And I'm super excited to be here. Yes. And I think the, the connection that we have in both of our platforms, we talk a lot about academia. And the thing that distinguishes both of our podcasts is or you have your, your other platforms, like other Instagram accounts and also um, other social media, like on um, your podcast that you had with your, with your partner. And it was interesting, like all of us have this running theme and Ariana and I both talked about, you know, the immigrant experience and having um, students who are immigrants from a variety of like different backgrounds and also immigration statuses, navigating um, higher education. Uh, we saw that in one of your Instagram posts, you you wanted to talk about more, much more in depth in a podcast episode about the immigration college student experience. And uh, we reached out to you to like have this episode because I think you, you have a really good um, sense of what it's like going all the way because you started, I believe, in the community college, right? And then you went all, straight to all the way through to a PhD. And now you are a, an assistant professor. So talk to us about, um, as we've been following you on Instagram, like, can you talk to us more about what are the missing conversations that we've seen um, with the student population? I actually didn't start in community college, but I think I mentioned that because at my high school, all the immigrant students from the ESL class were pushed into community college automatically. So I remember going to my advisor or counselor in high school and asking for a university you know, advice. And she handed me a community college application and said, why don't you start here? And she never even mentioned four-year universities to us at all. All of my classmates were pushed into community college, which is, I mean, I'm not against that. It's just that we didn't have all the choices presented to us because I don't think she trusted us, to, to, to be honest with you. I don't think she knew that we were able to do that, um, going to university. So I am always being like a rebelde, and I was like, I'm not going to listen to you and just apply to a bunch of universities by myself. But that was the first thing that I noticed that my peers that didn't have the ESL counselor um, all applied to UCLA, to USC, to all the universities, and all the ESL students applied only to community colleges. And um, I think that's that's part of the issue, right? Like, um, uh, we felt and find that one of the biggest gatekeepers are often the people that we think that we should trust or that we are told, like, this is the person that's supposed to help you. But and oftentimes, they're the gatekeepers and decide it for you. And Ariana and I have been, like, big, you know, like advocates and also like mentioning a lot of this, this happens throughout our whole journey. Um, it doesn't always just happen in the high school level. And it gets worse as we go further and further along is this patronizing idea that people have like, oh, you're not capable of handling all these things. And I think within your platforms, I think we've, we are also missing a lot of conversations about student parents throughout the whole journey. And I think even when we're talking about professional, the professionalization of our fields, it's, it's always saying, pues no puedes porque so-and-so-and-so, y menos if you are a student parent. Um, and also, it, you talk a lot about in your platform 
about these gender expectations, which I, I find like now that I'm, that I have my partner and we're also in this journey of like, maybe like right now I'm, I am the one that earns the most. And so like, even when well-intended, you know, family members or even friends are saying, you know, these certain comments that are like at the underline, it, it's underlining that this is like pobrecito and also um, it's not their choice, right? And it's interesting because uh, I, I see you as like a very strong like personality and have like, este, like this fire inside of you or like I, I have a lot to offer to the table. And it's like interesting that like then the people think that we're oppressing them somehow. And I'm like, well, you don't afford the same energy to like mostly femmes and women and queer folks that do most of this labor um, in the household. So this is interesting, like, talk to us more about, you know, like how it's been, you know, deciding and going through your journey as um, an early like student parent. Yeah, and we're both immigrants, actually. We're both immigrants. He came when he was two years old. I was 12 when I came. So different stages and way, way different experience too. Um, but he isn't documented. So our status, we're a mixed status family and that also affects the things that he can and cannot do. So when it comes to work, I'm the one that has to be out there because I'm the one that can, you know, have a social security number. I'm a citizen. I have so many other opportunities that he doesn't have. Um, so he's been working since I started college with, with the kids. I was in my senior year when I got pregnant with my son. And then I was in my PhD when I had my daughter. And he's been working part-time, but also helping at home because we just couldn't afford childcare. Childcare is so expensive. Even the university sponsored or, you know, discounted childcare is, was more expensive than my rent. So we decided that he was going to stay home as long as he could and work part-time. And I was going to go to school full-time. Because of COVID, he lost his job. Again, because when you're undocumented, you're, you don't have a lot of protections when it comes to your job. And we decided he was going to be home full-time. And he loves to do it. But I know he also likes to play that, oh, soy el, el mandilón de la casa, just because he likes to make fun of that. But the way that, um, I think our families are used to it, but like the people react to that, it's like, ay, que bueno que te ayuda tanto. Es un buen papá. And I'm like, no, women have been doing this for centuries. And you don't tell them que, que bueno que te ayudan en la casa. You don't tell them they're like the best mamas ever. So why is he getting all the praise? He does a great job, nothing against them. But just in general, I don't think, men should be praised for doing things that women have been doing for centuries. Exactly. And, um, and it makes me think of um, how maybe our parents also perceive this, right? Like um, I, I was having a conversation with my dad and it almost seemed like if you're a woman and you make it great, but it's almost not expected, like it's not expected as part of who you are, your duties. Um, I think it's uh, men usually get the praise for being so, you know, uh, uh, such great achievers that they do that. So when the roles reverse, it kind of creates a little bit of confusion or maybe people make excuses for them. Or even like the, the discussion about like within our families or even our friends. I think that's interesting when we see it in our friends because we claim to want to have this really different worldview, but when it happens, we're like, we still kind of underline have those comments. Like I've seen a lot of like your followers, whenever you post a question, like ask me a question. And then they ask this like huge, like 
it's the same questions, right? Like the similar ones that they ask about, like, what is it like in your family dynamic? How did you do it? How did you talk? And I'm like, well, the first thing is you have to have a really like solid conversation and transparent conversation with your partner in the first place. And I think it's really important to allow, you know, the men in our families to do, you know, new traditional ways of labor, doing labor and also that not every single man wants to have a specific type of future or dynamic or role in the family, that it could look different in that people are just so surprised. I think because maybe they don't see enough examples, but even then, like these questions that we're asking, like, what are we actually making you feel, you, the person feel with the repetitiveness of like, we can't move on. Like, I'm like, si quieres ir a la universidad and get a doctorate, like you as yourself, because mostly it's, it's mostly Latina women, right? Like that are asking these questions. I'm like, then how are we really creating this new reality where it's statistically speaking, mostly Latinas are obtaining degrees in general, more of us. Um, and even more so through grad school, do we get earned enough? No, that's a different conversation, but, but we're thinking about most of us now, and even in our followers, we mostly have women followers that are pursuing a doctoral or graduate degree or some sort of professional certificate or algo así. But it's like, if we're trying, if most of us are doing this, then you would think that the, the conversations would be different. Like I would have much more in-depth conversations about you know, like your actual expertise, your role, your what you what you're doing, aside from the traditional ways that we we see women interacting within our family. Like no podemos pasar de eso. Like we're we're still like stuck in there and we're still getting the same questions. But moving forward, I'm like, I would like to know more about your research. I would like to know about your own interest or even like, what are the new projects you have? Like the same questions. Um, y eso pasa mucho with like a lot of immigrant students. Same thing. Like, how did your family, you know, in, uh, you know react to this? Um, how do you balance work-life balance? Like that's the one question I'm like, if you're doing grad school with or without family, there is no balance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't exist. Yeah, that is so interesting because um, when I finished my PhD, I posted pictures with my husband and my kids and my, you know, regalia. We did like this big, big photo shoot. Um, and people were asking me as if I had like a magic recipe on how I made my husband help me or how I, you know, people were like, but how do you make him help you or stay at home with the kids? And I said, it's not uh, I, like I, I'm not no estoy embrujando. like we just had a conversation and I said okay I'm the one that wants to go to school you don't know if you want to go to school when you do I'm gonna be here to support you but for now can we focus on my career and he said go ahead I'm here for you and now that I'm um, I'm a professor he gets to go for free to college so I've been like okay now it's your turn if you want to go take some classes for free go ahead and he's still you know trying to figure that out but yeah, we're so fixated on like how, like, is there like a recipe, like step-by-step post that you can give me on how to do that? And it's so different for everyone. So that's why I always keep it real, what worked for me, but that's not what's going to work for everyone out there. Yeah. Um, and then regarding your immigrant college student experience um, and your students, how does it compare now that you're a professor? Um, and that with your with your students. 
So I think when we think of immigrants, um, in my opinion, we always think of either kids that came here very, very young and got used to the country right away, like they didn't suffer, they're just Americans now, or the older generations that are not fully adjusted to this country, right? But no one really talks about those, like those of us that come when we're teenagers or preteens, and you had a life back in your home country, and then that changed all of a sudden. And for me, that, I mean, yeah, I was undocumented, so that affected my experience as well in college. But at the same time, I didn't know the language. I didn't know the school system. I didn't even know how to talk to professors because I wasn't used to that. Um, so when I went to college, I remember that I will have to like take notes. We didn't have computers back then or laptops were really expensive back then. I will take notes and then go and translate them into Spanish because a lot of times I didn't know what they were saying to me in class. And it was like a going back and forth translating. And then at the same time, I left Mexico when I was 12. So I will get into like a complex Spanish concept. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And for me, majoring in Spanish allowed, um, like, allowed me to be comfortable in my own language. And I see that with my students that uh, a lot of times, many of my immigrant students will major in Spanish, not because they're passionate about the language or the literature, but, but because we, they want to feel at home. Um, and I have students who tell me, I love these classes because I can relate and I have so much fun here with my classmates. And I, I wonder if they really like the topics or they just like being in their language and their culture. Yeah, and also um, the discussion, and I've seen you talk a lot about the literature within immigrants, like in books, right? And so um, Ariane and I just recently took a summer class that was open to the community about Latinx and immigration. And we've talked about this in our previous episodes about like this trap in the literature and especially people that are not immigrants or that the, the, the kinds of immigrants that they're describing are not their own experience. So we get entrapped into these like stereotypical, hay pobrecitos, like all these things that are harming on our perception of who are immigrants. And then on top of that, when you are the immigrant that is going through college, you get boxed in and told that, oh, they, they, you must have, you know, crossed the border or things like that. And then we're harming the people who are actually, that was their experience. But I'm um, like, they're more than just that. Like there's a story after they come to this country. And there's also people that are coming in and immigrating from Latin America that are wealthy, that they didn't suffer from, you know, all these other things, or it wasn't like a forced removal. It was a, a push, you know, and most of these professors that I met actually were the, the FA professors that went to universities over there and that now are professors here. And they have a big disconnect to people that were, that came in here because of poverty and other reasons. And now there's, you know, navigating the space and in very elite spaces where it, there's a disconnect because it's class difference. And um, what have you seen in terms of the connections that we see in literature and how we view people and how we interact with them later on when we have those same students in your class. That just reminded me of um, talking to a professor from a university, I think in New York, and he came to UCLA to give a lecture on immigration. And that's when um, I think Iñárritu had an exhibition at LACMA, I believe, the immigration one. 
that simulated crossing the border through the desert. So you will have like those virtual reality goggles and you will pretend to be an immigrant crossing the border. And we're talking about that during lunch. And he said, oh, it was so powerful. I went through that and I felt like I was an immigrant. And I asked, well, what does it feel to be an immigrant? You know, I can um, not say things like that apparently, but he said, you know, just the suffering and it's just so stressful to be here in the helicopters. And I said, well, I crossed the border undocumentedly. That wasn't my experience. And he was like, oh, really? So what, how was it for you? I got in a car, we drove through and that was it. And his face was like of shock. And then he tried to like defend himself by saying, well, but that's not the experience that everyone has. So I said, well, crossing the border, like in to pretended to be, you know, in, in his exhibition, that's not the way that everyone crosses either. And for me, it's very important that we know that that's not the only story. And I think the problem is that not all of us immigrants are allowed to tell our own stories or we're afraid to tell our own stories. So I've been very vocal about my own story because I want them to know that there are many, many of us with different experiences. And that affects the, the way that we adjust or not to this country too. Yeah, and that also brings up the, the idea or the opportunities that immigrants receive or don't receive in academia. Um, the need for instructors to understand that we don't have a single way of experiencing being an immigrant, right? Like there's not a general experience. And in that class, I shared that we were reading about um, that dogs came with them. And as we were discussing the book, um, I mentioned like my, my immigrant experience or me crossing the border when I was 10 was not was one day like we were talking about memories and how sometimes those memories get um, shifted you you recall less as you grow older and I think the point that I was trying to make and I don't know if I, I got it across was like I remember it being three days but when I asked my dad he said it was one day and it was one night <laughs> and it wasn't as horrible it wasn't the way that it was being depicted or the way that people thought it was and then you know other people were commenting like oh well my parents came here and, and assimilated and da, 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 da. I'm like well that's not that's not my parents experience they did not assimilate they kept their culture intact and helped us remember where we come from and my younger siblings too so you know just for for people to have that in mind yeah, and I, when I've had students who are immigrants who um, sometimes don't want to share that part of themselves because they're ashamed of that. So I always start my classes by saying, I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 12. I got in a car in Tijuana and this one guy that I didn't know drove us across the border and now I'm here. And I, fi I find that, that um, sometimes they don't want to share their story and that's okay. But I've had students who, who come to me and say, I've never had an immigrant professor or I never knew that professors could be immigrants too, just like me and my parents. And for me, it's important to, for them to know that, um, you know, we can do so much more than just being um, a sad story. Like I also found a lot of joy in this country. I have a family here. I've been doing great things. And I also want them to, to know that of me. 
Yeah. And, and to think that every, like every single person that I've met in my, in, in talking about their personal statement or when they have to write personal statements, it gets really tough because I'm like, if I'm working with a student who's undocumented, I tell them it's up to you if you want to reveal that status or not. And I think some educators are not sensitive to that where the student may not actually want to reveal. And I was like, it's up to you. And then what they push is like, oh, you should say it because they're going to give you the award. And I'm like, that's not up to the responsibility of the student to do or not. You know, it, it's up to them to reveal as much as they want. And you don't know how traumatizing or re-traumatizing it may be for them to recount certain things. Like even when I had to first write my statement of purpose for grad school, uh, you know, you have the sense of like, oh, well, we already have like this very stereotypical immigrant story of, you know, the assimilation process, the having to know and translate. And I'm like, yes, that's pretty, like there's certain things that is common for any immigrant, you know, having to learn the language, having to experience bureaucracy and, and all that stuff. But I think every single one of us has intellectualized our experience in a different way or um, haven't even had the opportunity to even intellectualize it and to un really understand the experience in our, in our families immigrating from that country. Because even with my own parents, they immigrated from the estado de Michoacán uh, a Jalisco, and I was born in Jalisco. And it was a very, very different experience from you know, being from parents that merge Jalisco and Michoacan culture and traditions and then coming to the U.S. and it, it's going to change your experience depending on what city you ended up, you know, locating to. Growing up and being raised is a very, very different experience. And so I think I, I want to challenge a lot more of us to start thinking you do have a lot to offer in terms of your own story and your own experience and how you perceive or, or think that you could change the field of whatever you want to go into because you you're you probably bring in a very very different story or context to the field based on your own experiences which i bring up very like all three of us have a completely different experience um i flew like when i came to the country i i wasn't an airplane when i got here very drastically different than all of you all and i landed in napa which is very different than all of you right like it's and and even my, the way that I navigate it within higher ed, all of my friends have a very, very different experience. And so um, it's, it's important for us to not get stuck on thinking that just because all these white people are writing about us, that there's nothing else to offer and that there's nothing different to offer. There actually is because we still are heard in this very typical one dimensional way that later on we can't get over that. And it plays a lot of how immigration policy then gets affected because it gets affected in many ways like because people don't understand how financial aid could could really benefit and apply for different states just thinking about california in general sure we have some funding but i think there could be so many different changes if more people understood what it's like to be a college student who is undocumented or not undocumented and how you navigate FAFSA or California Dream Act is very different than other states that probably don't even have that funding to begin with. So it's more important for more of us to, to really understand this and, and not all students even understand what financial aid is. Even if you tumble in and, and como digo, like apuro panzazos, estamos like navigating, we might under, even understand what that looks like. Um, and for the people that do, 
it's more it's our responsibility to also like educate a lot of more people on your rights um, because it's we have a lot of work to do and not there's not that actually that many of us you can probably count within your own specialization very few that specialize in, in memory and seeing all these netflix shows which i know that you you comment a lot about darn like again you know like el mismo like la misma historia revolcada right and we buy into it i i don't want to see a story of an immigrant that's only about deportation or fear and deportation because i have that in my life every day every day i fear that my husband's gonna be deported so i don't need to relieve that by by watching it on pinch and netflix like i just don't i i want a story that's gonna be uplifting or maybe it's gonna make me forget about that for a little bit i just want to relax or i don't know i just i hate that every single latinx show well not every single one but most of them will have a deportation story most of them as if we don't know that pain already in our families and some of us will never know that pain right? It's, it's a completely different story too. So I just, I, I'm getting like very frustrated now thinking of people, but I don't want people to, to think of us as humans just because we suffer. Does that make sense? I don't want them to know all the bad things that we go through or we can go through as immigrants for them to care about us. That is a completely different problem that I think we have in this, in this country, but also the fact that is Latinx people as well making those shows. Um, I just finished Hentified a few months ago and it was a great show. And when it ended with deportation, I was like, okay, I am done, next. Because that shouldn't be the only story that we have to tell about ourselves. Yeah, and to think like, what is the, even in our own classroom, like when we were reading this one poem, um, and it was this white guy who went into, I forget that, what is the name of the, of the book that we read, Ariana? It, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It had, a, it, it, had a, it had an American flag in the cover. And from the get-go, I was like, oh, like, what the heck? You're talking about migrant children from Centro America who you went to this, like, deportation centers to ask them to write poems. And first of all, like, I don't know many of my students, I mean, first of all, they struggle a lot with writing English, first of all, you know, like it's, it's in especially academic English. And then on top of that, writing essays, immense poetry, right? Like poetry is even harder to, to grasp. And they wrote all these very typical, like El Immigrante who works in the agriculture and all these things and, and remembering or very like, I was like, I don't know. I, I work with college students and even then they wouldn't write, they don't write about that stuff. So it felt just like someone ghost wrote it, you know, and, and claimed it to be this, but it, it, what, the, what the problem is that then um, like those stories and we think that it's like the, the only way that we experience it, as opposed to talking about, I have less books or media talking about how can we resist then? How can we do things differently? Como podemos salir de ese hoyo? Like, there's not a lot of media that talks about, yes, there's these challenges, but even then, like within our own podcast, like we're trying to give people tools to later on, like do the things that they want to. And I think the best femtors I've ever had was the people that were very real to me and were saying, aquí, esto va, esto va a ser lo que, lo que vas a lo mejor, like experience, but there's always loopholes. 
let's work it around instead of saying, oh, well, uh, let's be defeated and wait for someone to deport us all, right? Like that's essentially what these media is repeating over and over again. And then what people who'd never experienced these things think that that's all we fear. I'm like, that's not really what I fear. I fear many different things, but the primary, that's not, that, that to reduce us to that is very one dimensional. And I'm pretty sure there's other people out there that that is a very big fear. But when we're working with college students, um, they have other things that are, are big pressers. And the first one is a lot about economic and how are they, are they, they feel that they can't, because they don't know how to navigate college um, in their field, they fear that they're wasting time, really. That's what they, they don't see how their investment or their, you know, their time that they're putting it together, if they're doing the right thing, right? That's usually what they're more scared of. And also for a lot of us um, Latinxes, we have some sort of responsibility with our families. So our goal, not, not for us, but for most of us, our goal is to get a good job a good paying job to help our parents back or our family. And um, we go and we go to college thinking, how can I make the good money and help my parents? Not really thinking about what we like to do for ourselves. And I think that happened to me when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And for four years, six actually, I studied for the LSAT and applied to law school. My heart was like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer, make all this money, help all these people be an immigration lawyer, a savior for the blah, 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 blah. And then when I got to law school, I said, this is not for me. This is not what makes me happy. And I quit law school and I studied literature instead. Um, and I remember people telling me, Ay, pero mija, te vas a ser abogada? ¿Qué pasó? and I just said, it just, that wasn't my dream. It was a dream that was imposed on me and I don't even know how that happened to begin with, that all of a sudden I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. Given that you um, study literature, what, in your opinion, what would be the best way for people to learn about undocumented people's experiences or via fiction or memoirs? That is so hard because I find that the people that get published, um, do so from a place of privilege. So even if you read those memoirs that maybe they work with documented communities, um, you cannot ignore that they got there because of this one person that had that place of privilege. So I always read that with like, you know, I'm always cautious about those books, but I think, I think just talking to people, to, to be honest, just talking honestly to your, with your peers and asking them about their lives, not just, hey, how did you cross the border? But also, hey, so when you first came to this country, what was the one thing that shocked you about this country? Which for me was that, that you couldn't throw trash out of like the car when you were driving because I'm from a very small town in Mexico. And when I came here, I threw something out of the window and my sister was like, no, te va a llamar la policía. <laughs> but you know, little things that will make you understand what it actually meant for them to come to a different country and having to, to learn different ways of living. Um, I think the the focus on pain in most of these immigration books is what I don't like, the focus on suffering. Um, I would like to see a book where you don't even know that the person is undocumented or an immigrant, is it just doing great things? And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they're immigrants or not. They're just living their best life. And maybe, I don't know, they have 
a vacation like in Venice, así con los ricos, and you cannot even tell that they crossed the border two years ago. I think it's important to like, when we're interacting with these students, I think this need to know their background is like have to support them. I'm like, my approach is I'm going to learn as much as I can about different, you know, identities or experiences. And I'm going to approach that student as if they might have this, they might not, not. but I, the student is supposed to guide me based on what they think it's interesting and pertinent. Uh, to them, because I think if we are now like trying to push it or trying to project these things on them, I'm like, just because you have a specific identity or a specific thing hidden or, or very visible, I think it's important to just be like, okay, like, I want to know what you care about, what what is something that you're worried about, or what, how can I help you, and then move on from there, because um, the conversations I have with a lot of students is about the worry about their family. Uh, because they're either the first in their family to college or their transfers and they're like, I've spent all this time and, and it's just reframing them of lo que tú estás pensando que it's the priority, it actually isn't. It's this part. Let's worry about what you want, regardless of what your family is. And I think it's trying to demystify what is, what is the messages that you're having from your family and how different it is now that you're in college and the, the way that I'm helping you or even interacting most likely in the classroom, how can you change it so they can see that you're not, you don't have to do it in this way, that you have other options, that there's more people in us in the field. If you know like the circle that we were surrounded in our network, our worries are a lot different because we had, you know, great people guiding us to seeing it's better to know about your actual passions, regardless of what anybody's saying, or el que dirán, and moving forward. Um, because I think then we are trapped into, if we're doing things for our family, then when things fail, that's hard. Like, and that's a big deal when, when the stakes are so high within your family. And I even had a student ask me, um, I heard a statistic that 70% of first-generation college students, once they receive their degree, then they move their family out of poverty. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know about that. I was like, what is poverty? Like, you have to question, you know, what is the indicator of poverty? Is the indicator of poverty being able to, you know, get approved for food stamps? Is the uh, poverty, like, what state, what area, like, because the Bay Area is going to give you a different cost of living than the Central Valley, than even in Southern California, and even within different cities, quien sabe, right, Bakersfield, and then LA, or what kind of LA County are you talking about? Um, because I was telling them, I'm like, sure, if your family was making $10,000 together, and then you make $40,000, sure, it's a big jump, but it's not going to give you enough money to invest. It's not enough money for you to actually have a savings plan. It's definitely not enough if you decide to have a family or even retire, like just yourself, it is not enough. Um, and so I, I always am very cautious about like this misinformation that even our students are navigating with because I'm like, those are dangerous. And if we teach more of us to be critical thinkers, then we start thinking like, oh, no, that's BS, you know? And how do we become better professors and, and better advisors, like in my case, with students that we have to demystify all these things with the conversations about what people perceive of us.
That's very interesting because I remember sharing with a student who wanted to go to law school and I asked him, do you really want to go to law school? Is that something that you want to do? And his face when I asked him, it was like, why are you asking me? Everyone wants to go to law school. And I said, I went to law school and I was very unhappy the few months that I was there. I, I will come home crying every night because I just didn't want to be in that space. And I told them how when I switched to literature, I um, came back from my first day of class and my husband was looking at me and he said, you're smiling. You haven't smiled in a while. And that to me, let me know that I was doing the right thing for me. And yeah, I'm not making a lot of money like the people that went to law school, but you know, I'm doing what I like to do. And it also helps that my mom um, was not expecting her daughters to do anything for the family. Does that make sense? She was not expecting us to support her when we became rich or you know, famous. She has to daughters with PhDs and feels that don't pay that much. Um, so uh, she was not putting that pressure on us. And I know that's different for other people too, that maybe their parents are telling them, hey, if you go to college, you can help us out. So it's hard to navigate that. I always tell my students that um, there is more to college than just becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. You can take dance in college. You can take painting, you can do so many different things. And I always encourage them to explore anything and everything until they find what they like. Yeah, we recently had an episode, two episodes with um, Harvard Law graduates. Um, one of them is about to graduate next year. And they were telling us all about their experience being one of the few Latinas in, in the school and in and their whole experience of being cold called and just the, the expectations uh, of them as students and that, that, that generally most of the students that were being admitted were light-skinned Latinas, if any, right? And so how they're trying to break, that, break away from that and trying to help other people get in because they know how the system works. So it's very unfortunate that, you know, that you had a, that experience and and it's set up that way it's set up to break you break you down and also to realize like the the our two guests were second generation latinas so also to think about if you are first generation not only college student but also first generation immigrant there's certain programs that are looking at what are the navigational challenges or knowledge that you bring into the table if you already like those little things they probably like, no, we want second gen. Because if their goal is to find Latinas that are a lot more assimilated, then that's a whole different kind of student that they're looking for. They are, they have every single cohort. If you see, they have very similar underlying themes of who the actual student that they're looking for. And even then any field that you go into, I say like, it doesn't matter if you are there to supposed to, if you're supposedly there to try to help the people, in your community, todo eso. In general, you're not going to make that much money because you're not working for these big people or these big roles that are the ones that exploit the very people that you're working for. So if you go into any field, that's the kind of questions and ethical things that you have to consider is, sure, you can become a professor or go and get your doctorate, but what kind of professor are you going to be? Because even looking at my own journey and seeing like, okay, like how, like no, no, no se me siente bien like in my soul to do this because then I have to be there. 
and it never stops, right? Like you are, people are thinking like, oh, I want to infiltrate and do all these things. And I'm like, sure you can infiltrate, but they're not going to let you do that because the people on top pick people specifically that think and do the things that they want you to do. And I think it's important for, I mean, even in the workshop of the how to get tenure that Ariana and I were in, I was just like, estaban poniendo tanto like emphasis on your camera quality, your internet bandwidth, your noise level that you have in there. And then they were so elitist and ableist to the point that they're not even considering like how you, Mari, talk a lot about what it's like being a student parent with toddler, with a toddler, like that is, and, and I was thinking too, I'm like, if it were my abuelita, cause um, she had, a, her youngest child is autistic. And so you cannot, and it's depending on the spectrum, there's no way that you could go into a job interview expecting that your child won't walk in or make noise in the background. And I'm like, si quieren expand the access, well, no wonder you get the same, you know, mediocre pool, because I'm like, you are having all these standards that a lot of us, that's not the reality. And also thinking about the reality that our, even our own students don't have. And I was telling Ariana, our current students are way more poor than what they experience as students, because we're thinking about multiple economic downturns along now with the pandemic, it has going to have repercussions on the long term, where does it really matter what kind of camera quality we have? I'm like, what I would think, I'm like, that's such a white supremacist thing of like, like, why are we still like telling these people that this is important? If anything, we should start advocating for people. If your department and your search committee is that pressed about these certain superficial things, then maybe that place is going to be toxic. Why are we sending off our own community into toxic, violent spaces, y que se aguanten. You know, like that is so like not empowering for me. And, and this is coming from a mostly Latina org, national organization, which I've, I'm finding that's the worst. And I'm like, I've, I've gotten to, um, I wanna give a shout out to Circe, the Critical Race uh, Theory and Education Association, which was actually different. They were like, we did everything possible to like the things that you shouldn't do in the search committee, Toledo, and I got it. Like, and I think that's the, the wrong message that we're sending our new incoming people that we have to like aguantarnos and do all these things where I'm like, why can't we create the same sort of reality that we're trying to supposedly advocate to have? I'm like, if the person, my, my thing is, if the person does not you know, like me for all of me with or without good camera quality, then I think they may not like, they're going to care for, and it's going to be a very toxic experience throughout the whole thing. And they're going to find any way to kick you out. And I really love, Mari, when you talked about your whole search like process for your tenure track, um, like jobs, and that you did it for two years. So can you tell us about like, what are some questions that you had for that committee so we can empower more of us to say like, what are some things that we should look for? And if they should, if they don't provide it, then ni modo nos vamos somewhere else. We have very, lots of talents. And that's not the only things that we could do is, you know, sufrir, you know? So you just reminded me that I took a bunch of workshops on how to apply for tenure track jobs at UCLA. Um, I paid for some of them because I was just desperate to have some sort of guidance. 
Um, and a lot of the energy goes into how to answer or avoid questions about your family, your children, or your, or your status if you're married or not. Um, and a professor asked me, are you going to disclose about your children and your, and your husband? And I hadn't even questioned that. I was like, why wouldn't I? Um, and it was interesting to see in which type of universities those questions came up and in which they didn't. Um, I interviewed at a very conservative white place. And when they were asking me for my information for my flight, the person that called me asked me, oh, is your husband coming? You don't have a husband, do you? So I said, oh, I didn't know he was invited to the interview. I thought I was interviewing. Um, and that, you know, that question took me by surprise because why will they even care if I was married or not? I'm not asking for his permission to travel to for my interview. And it's not a coincidence that I accepted the only place where I feel completely comfortable to talk about my kids. In the other one, I was very careful because I've heard horror stories from professors saying, yes, the way that they take that information out of you about your kids and your husband can affect you because they think that if your husband is making a lot of money somewhere else, uh, you're not going to be able to, to come over here. And then it also made me think, why, why is this person asking me if I have a husband? What if I have a wife? You know, just that just tells you a lot about the things that um, they value in those type of institutions. So that place, um, I actually went for the campus interview and uh, the application said that they wanted someone to come in and work with diversity and Latinx students because they were looking into becoming a Hispanic serving institution. And when I talked to the Dean, my question was, well, when you get all this money, when you become an HSI and get all the, the, the thousands of dollars, what are you going to do for Latinx students? And he answered, well, you know, all the students matter. So we're going to find a way to make it work for everyone. And that for me was like, nope, I am not coming here. Because you're telling me that you want me here because I'm Latina and you want me to get the students for you to get the money. But once you get the money, you don't want me anymore. You don't value me and the students that look like me. And one thing that helped me be that comfortable was to also know that I was interviewing them. They were not the only ones interviewing me. I was interviewing them. And did I see myself at that space? I didn't. And I declined the offer when I got it because I did get the job and I didn't want to be there. And I didn't have any other offers lined up for me. And I just said, I don't want to work there. I'd rather work as an agent somewhere else than working there. And I declined the offer. And that for me was staying true to what I, you know, who I am as a professor. I didn't want to be the token Latina girl, just getting the students for the money. Also, I, I go into the line of caution of also saying to students, I'm like, decline the first offer if it doesn't feel right, right? Like it's, it's so tough. It's so tough because like when I was doing the job search process after my master's, first of all, a lot of them got canceled because of the hiring freezes that was happening like right at March, you know, this year. And I just was like, you know what, I'll stay, like you have to take a leap of faith and you have to be really strong in your, in your values. And I also thought long-term, like I can't just think short-term, long-term I'm going to be miserable. And also thinking like long-term, I also have other options. Like you, we have to give ourselves a lot more value than, than 
than what we currently think we were capable of. Because I'm like, si tuvieras aceptado esa oferta, like that would have been a super toxic environment. And then for your family, you would have to move. Like it's a, it's a decision that impacts everyone, not just yourself. But ultimately, see, if you're not okay, then none of your family members will be okay. Um, because like, how are you going to show up for yourself? How are you going to show up for your family? Si estás bien amargada, like from coming with other amargados in your workplace that are constantly using you. I mean, they're exploiting you to another level because it's not the usual level of exploitation that you're used to. You know, it's like on top of that, you're going to be the token one that opens the gate to bring in all these people, but then violently pushed out cuando ya no le sirves. Um, it, it's something that we have to think about. And I'm like, it, you know, we have so many different skills. And I think uh, what, I, what I appreciate so much of my family, I'm like, podemos hacer de tantas cosas. Somos tan talentosos that I was just like, you know what? If all fails, I have all these skills. Y además, no soy tan, este, my ego's not that big that I will like not do it. You know, I'm like, there's, there's a certain craft and, and talent of being able to know so many different skills. So I was like, si tengo que vender hielo, si tengo que vender, you know, pan, I will do it. But that would be way better than having to deal with this because I'm like, pan y educación, vamos a hacer, you know, like a, a, a consulting company, you know, but we're going to get creative. <laughs> I'm laughing because I told my husband when I declined the offer, and I was waiting to hear from the other places that I interviewed at and like nothing was coming in, nothing was coming in. And I told them, bueno, mijo, pues vendemos tacos. You know, I know how to make tacos. My mom's tacos in Mexico. You know how to cook. Vendemos tacos. Le llamamos tacos la doctora. Like for me, that seemed better that being at a place unhappy and having my kids move around to a place where they were going to be the only Latinx kids from a place that was like a Trump supporter place. I didn't want them to grow up there. I rather like stay in, in my neighborhood with my people selling tacos at the corner than being at that place. Also, yeah, my ego is not that big. I will hand my diploma at the taco stand and, you know, be like, mira, I'm making your tacos. I have a PhD. I know how to make them good. Um, so it, it took a lot. And I was scared, mo mostly because it took me so long and it was such a sacrifice for my entire family for me to get the PhD that I didn't want to fail them. And I didn't want them to, to think that everything they did for me was for nothing. So I was afraid of that, but I wasn't afraid of doing something different. And thankfully the place that I accepted um, gave me an offer two days after I declined the other one. So it all worked out. I don't know who prayed for me, but I appreciate it because it worked out. But if it didn't work out, I don't think, um, I don't think I would have regretted it. It's not the end of the world. And now you're equipped. You have your PhD. You, you, you can do anything, go anywhere. And just a matter of time. So <laughs> you give us hope. And also, um, I don't think it would have been just tacos, right? I think you would have been like tacos and personal statement advice. Tacos and an academia chisme. You know, like it, it would have added, you know, it would have, it would have been a very dimensional, like very dynamic experience. So it's not just the tacos. You would get so many other things that I think we could be so creative. And I think we are waiting on all these white people to do all these consulting. I'm like, what happened to our uh, consulting to our gente too? Like, we can still do that. And I'm like, I think it would be very homey, very like, 
what what HSIs want to do, we would probably do it better. And I think this is a thing that we have to place way more value in our actual craft because it's we don't just do one thing. We do so many different things at once and they don't put that, they don't measure that as part of the success. Like being able to, like, I think the hilarious part that I get from students is like they want to minor in Spanish because they would on paper look like they're bilingual and I'm like, honey, like that's that that's not how it works. Like, do you like literatura? Are you gonna be a translator? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, probably that's not a thing to do. If you wanted, like, let's say on paper the minor, you could probably test it out and get credit for it or the bilingual literacy seal. But honestly, from this whole time, even with the bilingual literacy seal, I have not gotten paid extra for being bilingual to be quite honest, because I'm in an industry where that does that like in higher ed, they don't pay you bonuses for speaking another language. And oftentimes we never do because I, I like how you mentioned Mari, like heritage speakers is very different than the academic Spanish that is taught. And I'm like, you have to think about Spanish as if it was an English class, the same thing, but it's in a different language and they have different emphasis. So I think, um, I, I really like how you break it down on Instagram and even in your in your podcast, those different differences of like demystifying all these things. Like we could have a whole conversation about una, like, you know how like where they sell cenas? I forget what it's called in Spanish, but I'm like, it would be a whole home gathering where we can educate all of our family members of what it's like to navigate college. And I'm like, su hijo está haciendo esto, no está haciendo esto, just so you know, you know, like it, it would be so helpful and it would be like con ambiente and everything. So it would be such a dynamic experience. So if anyone wants to start that second uh, high side hustle where we can also hire our family members who need, you know, some experience, there's an idea out there, you know, you don't have to commission me for that idea, but you know, like that's, that's a thing that, that we could do that could be probably more impactful than probably the job that we first got offered. And that's so interesting because I talk very informal in class. So I said no manches in class. I said, I mean, that's the way, you know, when I'm talking about the Mexican president, um, I talk like how, how I talk at home. That's who I am. And my students have, um, it's funny because the first time that I said something like that, they go like this and they're like, can we laugh? was that a mistake and I said you guys can laugh that, that's what I say that's how I am and then they become more comfortable with that and then you see how they like loosen up and they become you know happy being in the classroom and then they start talking like that too um but I I did not want to be that Spanish professor that talked in like weird words and no one could understand and was like oh I speak proper Spanish for me being a Spanish was like okay I'm gonna use my Spanish and I'm going to value your Spanish whatever that is and we're gonna work on this together and learn from each other and it's, it's interesting to see how some professors don't appreciate that for me when I'm at a conference presenting and I say things like well no you know I stay way también and they're like yeah, I did. And if you don't like it, that's, that's on you, not me. I'm very, how I am right now, that's how I am in class. And I think my students appreciate that a lot. They feel very comfortable coming to my class and also talking to me. 
And I think I want to show them more than anything that they can be themselves in academia and they can be successful. I appreciate your realness because <laughs> I, I feel like the students, if I was one of your students, I would, I would feel like you're authentic and you're being your genuine self and I can trust you when, you know, you're comfortable speaking the way you speak, you know, they can relate to you and that your PhD or your professorship doesn't change that, you know, you're, you're still, um, and deep down, you're still the same. I always tell them that I'm, I'm Mari from the block. It doesn't matter how many degrees I have, I'm so Mari from the block. Um, and then I need to put that in a song and just like play it for all my classes on the intro. So, um, Mari, you have mentioned in your IG stories how your platform has changed throughout time and building boundaries with your followers. How do you see your platform changing now that you will be transitioning into your new position? That's something that I've been thinking about lately, just because um, I don't have a lot of time to be uh, creating content like I used to before. So I used to write my blog and I used to have my podcast and I used to have like pretty graphics on my Instagram. I don't have that time anymore. Right now I'm doing more because I'm not in school yet, but I start next week. So I know that I'm going to get busier and I'm not going to have time to do everything that I used to do. And I consider making the account more of like an advice account or, okay, this is how you apply to grad school, 10 steps. This is how you do this, five steps. But I also don't want to do that because that's not who I've been on Instagram for the past four years. I think what I do is I just share my life. When I'm working, when I'm, you know, working and my daughter is like at the door crying her eyes out because I locked her out or something. That's what I've been sharing. That's what I'm going to continue to share until it's not fun anymore. Um, I know that it's not the most practical account for people, maybe that they want like specific step-by-step -step directions on how to do something, but I don't see myself doing that. It's also a lot of work, as you know, probably because you get those questions too. It's a lot of labor. It takes a lot of work. Um, sometimes I get questions on the DMs asking me to help them with their homework and I just don't know how to say, I am sorry, I cannot provide that labor for you in a nice way, because at the same time, I know they're coming from a place of not having anyone to ask. Um, and it's just, it's, it's very tricky when you are um, someone that's always open to ask, to answer questions, but then you get those questions that are going to take you a long time, or they're just, they require a lot of your energy and you don't have that to give anymore. Um, and that's why I've been doing my boundaries with, with my Instagram account, because I had to take care of myself. I cannot be everything for everyone. And I think a lot of people don't recognize how much actual work it takes to do like an IGTV, um, you know, like a, a video on specific things and, you know, primarily your work hasn't been on you know talking about academia in the way that most students probably are asking because they're coming from different fields and I think every single field has their own NIOSH you know context and in the way that they're asking for depending on what school you're thinking about it's going to be different the thing that you want to specialize is you're going to navigate it very differently there's no like magic wand that's going to fit in every single scenario either and things and committees are changing a lot now and i think um ariana and i created this podcast is to you know provide a context where every single guest can talk about their own journey and 
we're not the kind of podcast that goes on the details of every single thing, just because that's not what we're interested in doing. Um, because it's a lot of labor too, to like be specific and how do you be engaging in that? Like, that's going to be for us, it's a boring podcast. We do ask a, you know, our, because that's not generally what we want to do. We want to connect to people and have them like, we can talk about, you know, your own life, personal life. We can talk about your own research. We can talk about depending on what guest is coming in. We don't want to just box them in and say, well, let, talk to me about specific detailed steps on how to write a statement of purpose. What did you do to study for the GRE? Like there's other content. And if you look at YouTube, there's a lot of white creators that write and talk about that if you want to. What we're trying to talk about is navigational tips that helped us and talk about the challenges that we went through as the person who we have as a guest is comfortable talking because there's certain guests that we we've had who just wanted to talk about a specific thing and I'm like okay that's fine um, but you can you can see that and search that up in some schools they have a career you know center that talk about the predominantly white way to like get into grad school but when we decided to do a podcast every single guest has talked about a different traditional way of them getting into grad school of them doing and their thinking process like we're more interested in talking about the thinking process of every single thing and then we you know include chismet too you know or, or like little things that we talk about in our own personal lives that has helped us but we've gotten dms about that like saying could you do a you know step-by-step -step thing could you share my research pero no incluyen like these etiquettes things that makes it easier for us who are content creators to post and i'm just like okay if you have a for any listener and sometimes i don't even listen to our podcast or i've seen a lot of people not read your blog so don't be that person if you're thinking about doing grad school and you don't know how to do this research thing i'm scared I'm scared for you because you're gonna be that student that everyone is like, er, like, you know, like does not like. And so if you need that, Maddie has probably already written on it on their blog. It's like that same thing that a lot of professors say. It's like read the syllabus, you know, like also read the read our posts, look at our, you know, highlights that we have, our links. We have a, probably a link tree with all the content that you're probably looking for. And if you're a new follower, I think that's the hard part. You're asking labor to a stranger. You might have known Maddie by watching, you know, all your, your, your stories and stuff like that, but you had created content like that before. And so I think it's also like um, easier for people to just like look at what we have. And sometimes we're just not that Instagram post. So that's why I highlight other, you know, uh, pages that probably that do that already like black and in grad school does all like the very detailed things and i'm like if you're anti-black and don't want to follow other you know black content creators or any other ethnicity or race then that's on you too because all latinas are not going to do the same thing that you're expecting them to do um and on top of that like um that's why i love like seeing all the emerging you know other instagram accounts that do want to do that and that's what they offer um go follow them you know like they, we we're probably friends with each other too like and so i'm like hey go like this is why we post them but just for future reference like the etiquette that i've seen is like we in order for us to create a sustainable environment we also have to if you wouldn't go out in a, in a stranger and start saying like can you do this for me 
you wouldn't do that to them, right? Like, or I hope not. Um, and, then, and so in Instagram, I've taught students Instagram or social media etiquette. I'm like, if you want to network, here's how you address the person. Don't misgender them. Don't, you know, include your name. If they, you see a doctor, por favor, put doctor something, you know, like, or the, whoever, they, they probably already included that because they probably, you know, get a lot of those things happen. And then make sure to introduce yourself, do a short little thing, short direct, and just say, what is your ask? And if it's not possible, always ask, can you redirect me with someone? Or do you have, you know, other resources or people to do that kind of content? Because I think it's so much work. And I'm glad that there's more pages out there because what happens is that all of us are going through different line stages. Like Ariana and I are probably not going to focus so much on the grad school application process because ya pasamos esa for the masters. Same thing as you, Mari, like our pages, we're not one dimensional people. Well, you're going to continuously talk about what it's like dissertating because you're not dissertating anymore. That's done. <laughs> and I don't want to like remember that. It was, it was a lot of work. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I've, I've been sharing how I create my syllabi. I've been working on creating my pages for my students because that's what I'm doing right now. And I did answer some questions on grad school because I just get DMs asking me all the time. So I said, I'm going to answer some questions, put them on my highlights, and just when they ask, tell them, go to my highlights, go to my highlights, go to my highlights. Uh, but it's, I also try to be nice because I know that um, they they're looking for that information and it isn't out there. And that's why they're looking for it, right? And that's why maybe they're reaching out. But at the same time, um, it's interesting to see how they demand things from you. Not everyone, but it, it can become very demanding. And I remember one time um, I was like in mo like mommy mode and I told this person, oh, you forgot to say please and thank you. Because that's what I tell my kids. You forgot to say please and thank you. And that person got mad at me and blocked me because I said that on the DMs. But it's just being, you know, having some etiquette, like you said. And remembering that you don't know that person. I always tell them that they see what I want them to see. I curate my Instagram. The Mari on Instagram is not the whole pictures, is not who I am as a whole. That's just what I allowed them to see. So people um, have a hard time understanding that. And that's why I have my boundaries, that's why I have my DMs closed. And that's why I don't answer to all of them because I just can't. And I'm also glad that there are more Latinx grad students popping up on Instagram so I can just be, hey, so-and-so is doing this, follow them, instead of um, having to go through the labor of explaining things myself. I almost feel like we already asked this, but um, from a lot of your stories, the common question you often get is about managing graduate school as a parent, how to apply and navigate graduate school PhD programs and time management tips. Now with a surge of followers, most seen, uh, seem to know, to not know about your blog, can you share with us the different platforms you have and your experience with content creating and the way people engage with you online? Yeah, I um, when I started my page, it was a very selfish project that my therapist um, pushed me to do because I was complaining of like not knowing any parents in grad school. So he said, make an Instagram and they'll find you. Um, so it wasn't like I never imagined that it would become what it is today. And I did go through a period of being more hands-on and explaining things step-by-step step because I had the time. And I have all of that saved on my blog and my Instagram. 
I opened an Instagram for moms in, in higher ed that I'm having a hard time managing because it's a lot of work and I don't have the time right now. And I thought about asking my husband, but he's on full-time kids duty and I don't want to put that on him either. Um, so I'm, I'm, right now I'm questioning what to do with that page because I also want everyone to have those resources and visibility. But I think now I'm at a place where I have to to be very honest on what I can do and what I cannot do. And also tell myself that the world is not going to end if I don't do everything. And also, I think it's like, it's such a hard line to do because I think I, I understand where some of these students are coming from, or even the followers are coming from, from finding themselves stumble into your page and then start to think like, oh, like, I think I have a hard time with the concept of like, do your own research just because I find that a ton of people actually don't know how to do research or where to find or what to look because there's so much content that is not helpful, that is not true, um, that is, you know, false information for some, for some folks. And I'm like, if you're thinking about a particular thing, I, 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 I know where to look because I've been tapped into that and I, and I'm, and I'm, I have had a lot of guides um, telling me what, what to look for and what are the red flags in certain, in certain places. So, but it's also, I, I like now in my new position as an academic advisor, I get those emails from students like I'm in panic and you know, I got dropped from my classes. I need help with this. Or can you help me with like finding a minor or urgent? I got my transfer credit report. You know, I need this, this, and this, and this. And I also have to think about, you know, like realistically, I'm like, it'll be fine. And also I've had to tell even my colleague because she got, she got a student who was complaining about their misadvising. And so if you know advisors, we are very like sensitive to, you know, students feeling that they were misadvised because there's a lot of horror stories that happen and, and we can understand like there could be trauma associated with that. And especially if they're transfer students and have had lots of misinformation throughout their journey we're sensitive to that but also i'm thinking there's also a responsibility for the student unfortunately to have to know how to navigate a lot of these things to prevent certain things from happening so advisors can only do so much with the amount of information you're giving us because we are not tapped into all the departments uh, we don't know your financial aid we don't know if you have a file with like the disabilities office like, we don't know, you know, a lot of things. And sometimes I think we shouldn't know because there's a lot of, you know, danger to that if, if it, you know, goes into the wrong hands. But also, um, I have had to create some boundaries with like how much I can offer advice. Because I told my colleague, I'm like, well, that situation happened. And unfortunately, you gave the wrong information. Normally, you wouldn't have. But also, the kind of environment that we're told to work in is unsustainable we are often seeing students 30 minutes back to back we have meetings we have projects ec no, our work environment isn't happening and plus we're working from home like it's very different than if we were working on campus where we can see each other in the colleagues and say like oh you met with that student so that student had been bouncing around with advisors and normally we would all talk about it you know and say like oh i've gotten the student i've heard that this and this and that well, that student got the wrong information. They were blaming them. And I told the student, I'm like, if we're the only department reaching out to that person, 
there's other departments that also have the responsibility to meet with them. If we're the ones that we're the most accessible to them, that's not our fault. More of us should be more accessible to students and more of us should be also doing that work. Um, and if that student is feeling that certain way, it's not your job because you don't work at that institution. Uh, you're not their professor. I'm not their advisor, you know, like things like that. And so I think that has helped me feel like, well, then that just, you know, my intuition is right and more of us should be doing this. But then also like you, you feel and you feel empathetic because you te pones en, en el lado de, su, de, de la parte de esa persona and you're like, dang, like that sucks. And I'm so privileged that I had all these resources and, and the support network, but also it like, it shouldn't be your fault. And if people block you for all that stuff, I'm like, pues ni modo, like you're also losing out on some cool things, you know? <laughs> and I, I enjoy when you show your kids and you show that this is possible because there's not a lot of PhD um, professors who actually show that they have a family and that they're also Latinas because that's so stigmatized. And I've seen way too many academics, especially Latinas that don't have family members or even children of their own um, project all these things that I'm like, it's your fault for having these things. And how dare you become the stereotype Latina with, with children, you know, like, ooh, you know, like it's, it's terrible, right? Yes, and that's why I have family-friendly policies in my, um, my syllabus, especially now that we're at home, I have on the syllabus, you're going to cure my children, I'm going to cure your family. Let's just get that out of the way. We're going to hear each other's family. I don't care if I see your abuelita in the background. I'll say hi to your abuelita. I'll be like, hola, abuelita, como esta? That, that we can expect that. Um, and I also make it a point to include um, parenting students and caregivers because especially with Latinx families, we can see a lot of the older siblings being responsible for the younger siblings. And now they're at home. They're the ones teaching their younger siblings at home. The, through the whole homeschool situation while their parents are at work. And they're doing that while they're going to college and taking their own classes. I had a student who, t who told me, I went back home and I have seven siblings. I cannot log in at this time because they're all taking class at this time. And I said, that's fine. That's perfectly okay. You log in when you can and we'll figure something out. So I try to make it a policy and I try to tell them in person, if you have someone that you're taking care of at, at home, and you need to miss class or something, that's fine with me. If you need to bring your babies or your nephews or whoever to class, your grandparents, that's fine with me. I've given lectures holding people's babies and because they bring them to class and I've been like, oh, can I hold your baby? And just being so happy holding the baby the whole class. I don't mind because we cannot expect to preach about diversity and not count caregivers and parenting students in this diverse uh, world that we expect. They're part of diversity. And we also need to let go of that idea of the traditional student that only goes to college and don't have kids to their like 30s or something because that's not the reality either. And I think it's it's important to like talk about if we are, you know, bringing them in, like they, they're coming in with different uh, needs. And so I think it's important to be as accommodating as possible. And you see it as you know, an asset because now you're engaging with la abuela. Now la abuela knows a little bit more about what it's like to take the class, which is like so important for more of us to start engaging our family members 
in these classes and be like, eso lo que se ocupa para tener, you know, an A for this class. You know, this is a lot of work and it's not easy. And even if we are playing games when we're doing the lecture, hey, we're still doing the lecture, you know, but it's, it's important to realize that there's, and so before you were able to maybe hear the stories, but now it's there, there, those worlds are merging. Can I share something that happened last quarter because it was the most impactful thing that happened to me? I taught a class on women's voices in contemporary Mexico and a student told me that because it was online, her mom was able to take the class with her and her mom was a Mexican woman. And I dedicated a whole week of the class to motherhood in Mexico and what that looks like to different people in Mexico. And I got like a review from her mom saying that she saw herself in class and she never thought she will see herself as a Mexican woman in a class at UCLA. And that to me made me realize that now I'm teaching a whole community, not just one student. And I'm thinking of my class that way. Am I reaching everyone, not just the one student that's in front of the computer? Because you don't know who's listening in the background. You don't know if the student is talking to um, their tios or their tias or whomever. So we need to think of our classes as a for the comunidad and not just for one person. And to think about like all these subjects especially classes in ethnic studies in Spanish, or even any of the language classes, is an opportunity to actually engage them in the whole family unit. Uh, I'm a big advocate for more researchers in higher ed to start doing research in family units. Doing, instead of just the individual student, interview the whole family unit because they, we don't make decisions in silos. Oftentimes we make family whole decisions on based on who's going to college, who's not, how many units you're enrolling or not, um, what classes are you going to take. And I think the classes that made the most impact was my Chicanx studies, where I engaged my family in this conversation, where we had a very, you know, difficult relationship during that time. And I was able to connect with them and understand them in a lot better. And, and I was way more empathetic in their own journey because we often, you know, romanticize this like, oh, mis padres hacen esto and they vinieron con tantos sueños and whatnot, like all these things. But I'm like, in reality, though, once you're an adult, you have a very different dynamic relationship. And especially someone who's, you know, um, uh, Mexican women you know, very, very different expectations. And so I think it was really important for me to engage in the, in the context. And they started seeing and valuing like, oh, mira, si estás aprendiendo, you know, like you're seeing it now play into role. And, and they see themselves, you know, connect because they have thoughts about the topics too that sometimes we're missing or, and then we can include in our essays because we're like, oh, I, I learned this from my so-and-so. Y eso lo que pasó. I mean, yesterday I was talking to um, my partner's family member about like lo, la guerra de los cruceros and all these things and and they they were like their eyes were lighting because they're like oh i can talk to you about these things right and it's and it goes along with your research which is about memory and remembering and and all these things that we do our family has a lot of wealth of knowledge um we just don't value it and i actually um i'm teaching a class on heritage um spanish this upcoming fall and one of the assignments is a leyendas project where you interview your family on a leyenda that they know it can be like a well-known leyenda like La Llorona or something that just the family knows and they have to do research on it, interview someone and then present it to class because I want them to know that their stories are what matters in our class. 
I want to hear them and about their family and their leyendas. I don't care about what the book says. I don't care about Gabriel Garcia Marquez or whoever they have to read for the, for the textbook. I want to hear them and what they have to say. Yeah, well, thank you so much that we have you in our fourth season of our podcast. Um, and it's just been a great conversation. And before we close off, is there anything that you would like you know, to share or any last thoughts, closing or ways that people could connect to to your work? I hope everyone can be encouraged to be themselves, no matter what that looks like and no matter what space they're in. Um, and just to let them know that uh, it's not easy, but it's doable and to keep going at it. Yes, and that all of us are going to start, you know, creating all these like different content and to look out for them because I think that's that's the amazing part of like, you know, passing on the the, the next generation to come in because I think all the TikToks, I've, I've learned way more from TikTok than I ever have in my like years in college. So I've been telling students, I'm like, don't think about, you know, adding a minor or adding something that doesn't make sense. Just go on TikTok or YouTube or any of the media to learn something new, because that's another way of learning something. You don't always have to have a degree on certain things. And some people, the degree really isn't going to do anything for you. So, you know, try to get as more practical, because I think that's what we're missing is we're, we know the theoretical, but how, how does it look like in practice? And I think that's what we're learning a lot in TikTok, that cooking is very popular, sewing, doing all these like things that our family used to do before and dances <laughs> is very important. Yeah, and I think um, now my sister is going to college this fall. She's the younger one in the house and she's going to college and she's worried about you know, having the right classes and having the, the right grades and all of that. And I just want to tell her, like, have fun because you are, I mean, you have so many classes at your fingertips. You can learn so much. Enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mari. Um, and we'll still connect it. We'll uh, include any of your Instagram accounts or anything that you'd want in the show notes to for folks to like get connected and read your blog. We'll connect your actual blog right directly because I think that's a very important key resource <laughs> that often people miss. And um, anything else, Ariana, that you'd like to close this off with? Uh, check her highlights. I was reviewing some today. <laughs> Um, on time management that I found very useful and that there's no magic trick to that. Um, but she definitely had a really great tip. So definitely look at the highlights on Academic Mommy's um, Instagram page. So thank you. And also all. you have a, a shop, right? That you would want to, um, your sticker the shop. Stickers. Yeah, I make stickers. Um, I started making them because I needed money to go to conferences. And I, I made my Instagram, Instagram graphics into stickers and then it grew into this whole thing. And now it's my husband, my husband's side job because he lost his job. So that's how he's been working for the family. Um, and I, I think the best part of my stickers is that it helps people be connected. So I've had stories of people that went to a conference and saw somebody else with a sticker and they're like, hey, you follow Academic Mommy. And then they became friends. And that's, that's my, my whole goal in life, just connecting people. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And uh, all for all of our listeners, uh, until next time. For this week's BIPOC business shout out, we would like to highlight Academic Mommy, a brand for educated chingonas. 
you can find her shop on Etsy by going to etsy.com slash shop slash academic mommy and this is a brand for anyone who's in academia considers themselves a scholar or is an aspiring doctora um, she describes herself as a doctora hashtag chingona phd and mommy inspiring and supporting our comunidad she has been selling her great um, work through Etsy since 2010 and has a five-star review with um, great messages about uh, maestras and enfermeras, doctoras, uh, educated mommies, etc. Um, you can always check out her other work and um, shop and continue to share her work through your social media so check her out she is on etsy.com for all of our listeners you can email us at chicana codeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a patron contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.